You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Right, well, I'd like to welcome you all today. My name's Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network here at ODI. And I'm very happy to say that we had about 100, over 100 people signed up to come in the room today. So I'm hoping that others will be trickling in as we carry on. And we have over 300 people in our online audience. So welcome to you as well. Um, today's event is going to focus on humanitarian response in urban areas. And this is also the theme of the 72nd edition of the Humanitarian Exchange, which I think you've all got a copy of on your chairs. And I, I think it's well known to all of you that humanitarian crises are increasingly affecting urban areas. And this is happening uh, both directly through civil conflict, hazards like flooding or earthquakes, urban violence or outbreaks of disease, and indirectly through hosting people fleeing these types of threats. And of the total number of displaced people, there are an estimated 75% of them live in urban settings. But despite this, humanitarian agencies who are used to working in rural contexts are still trying to understand how the challenges and opportunities of working in urban spaces mean that they have to, how they have to change in the way that they operate. Cities are dynamic. They rely on markets. And for humanitarian agencies, the size, diversity, and mobility of uh, the displaced population or of urban populations can be a really daunting challenge. So the need to coordinate closely with often unfamiliar actors is another key challenge. So when humanitarians fail to recognize and work with these actors, municipalities, community groups, uh, service providers, the private sector, governments, then we have a, a less than optimal response. Um, so drawing on articles in the latest humanitarian exchange and their own research and experience, our panelists are going to discuss what's different about providing humanitarian assistance in urban areas and which tools and approaches can actually help to make responding to these crises more effective. But before I introduce our speakers, I just wanted to remind you to put your phones on silent, if you would. But feel free to tweet, and the hashtag is urban response. I'll be taking questions and comments from our audience in the room and online after we have the panel discussion. So hold your thoughts and, and questions until then, please. So without further ado, let me introduce our panelists. So on my far left is and let's see if I can pronounce it right, Alyosha D'Onofrio. Um, Alyosha is the senior director of the International Rescue Committee's Governance Technical Unit, where he oversees a team of technical advisors supporting IRC and partner programs in conflict-affected uh, and fragile settings around the world. And he's worked with IRC since 1997, joining the agency in Bosnia as a program manager of a network of information and legal assistance centers for returning refugees. Between 1998 and 2000, he worked on facilitating the first return movements to um, volatile urban areas in southeastern Bosnia. And from 2000 to 2004, he was the executive director of the new IRC UK office here before moving to DRC in 2004 as country director, 
where he was from 2008 to 2011. And then he was a regional director in the Africa Great Lakes program. And finally, program development director for Africa before his uh, current position. So very experienced uh, in this area. Diane Archer, who's on my immediate left, is a senior researcher in the Humanitarian Settlements Group and team leader of Cities and Climate Change in the International Institute for Environment and Development. Diane managed the Urban Crises Learning Fund at IIED from 2015 to 2017. I think you're going to say a little bit more about that uh, later. And her other areas of focus include urban climate change resilience, community-driven development, and inclusive urban development. And before she joined IIED, Diane worked at the Asian Coalition for Housing Rights in Bangkok. Then uh, we were going to have Daniel uh, Dykert join us from Kabul. I don't think that's going to be possible now because the connection, we weren't able to establish a, a stable connection. But we're very lucky to have with us today Ruta Nimkar. And um, Ruta, I don't have your bio in front of me, I'm sorry. But Ruta actually wrote the article in the edition on um, a new hub hub community service in Afghanistan, which we were going to talk about today in any case. So we're actually very lucky that we've actually got Ruta in the room. So I'll let you introduce yourself just briefly uh, before we, we start. Um, I'm Ruta Nimkar. Uh, I'm, I was the former regional head of programs for Central and Southwest Asia for Danish Refugee Council. And in that capacity, I covered Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Um, I was previously country director um, for Chesvi in Somalia, and I worked in South Sudan and Kyrgyzstan previously. Um, I'm, I've, I'm really excited to actually be here to talk about practical implementation as well as theory. That's great. Thank you so much, Ruta. And then last but not least is David Sanderson. And uh, David... There we go. <laughs> no, I've got the wrong page. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, David. Um, so David's had over 25 years of experience working across the world in development and emergencies. Uh, from 1994 to 98, he was the project manager at the Oxford Center for Disaster Studies. And David worked for eight years for CARE International as head of policy and subsequently regional manager for Southern and West Africa. From 2006 to 2013, he was a director at CENDEP, a center at Oxford Brookes University, focusing on development and emergencies. And he subsequently taught at Harvard, um, taught and conducted research at Harvard, as well as the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Um, David was appointed the inaugural Judith Nielsen Chair of Architecture at the University of New South Wales in February 2016, and he's just begun working on a new joint HPN-ALNAP Good Practice Review on Humanitarian Response in Urban Areas with the support of an expert advisory group. And we're expecting that publication to come out in February 2019, so look out for that. So now, um, we're going to spend about uh, 50 minutes or so having a discussion with our panelists. Then I'm going to open the floor for questions and answers. And I wanted to start off with um, Alyosha. Um, Alyosha, in your lead article for the Humanitarian Exchange, you pointed out that there's been a lot of talk as to what's different about providing humanitarian assistance in urban contexts. But you said that the specificity of those differences um, and the implications for programming have been difficult to pin down. So what do you think is distinctive about urban settings? 
And how should humanitarians be adopting programming approaches and engagement strategies to take these into account? Thank you. So uh, it's, it's funny, when I was sort of rereading the article um, over the last few days, I was thinking, actually, I'm, I'm not sure that I completely dodge the bullet of the accusation I, I throw at everyone else, which is that oftentimes we find it really, really tricky to um, be specific about what we mean about working, doing humanitarian work in an urban setting. What's the distinctiveness of that urban humanitarianism or urban response? Um, and I, the, the reason, as I, as I said in the article, I think we struggle with that often is that um, there are a bunch of uh, accumulated bad habits, if you like, about how we work as humanitarian agencies in general, and that this involves um, often being quite context-blind, uh, being uh, specifically blind to our own um, power relations in relation to the communities and the, the uh, local stakeholders with which we work. And I think that what tends to happen is that people then project onto urban settings all these characteristics that they've often ignored in rural settings, so or in, in a camp-based setting for that matter. So, for example, you'll hear people say, "Well, um, you know, there's there's uh, you know there's there's sort of local power centres and things like this." Well, those local power centres, there's local power centres in every village, but oftentimes these are ignored or or, or marginalised, and so. What, what, what we do is we sort of project onto the city uh, things that sometimes are really just a reflection of our own um, blindness in, in, in rural contexts. So that said, then what do you pull out? So obviously there is, there's something, you know, you feel that it's different, right? You know that there's something distinctive about a city, an urban environment as compared to, to other environments. So what is that and, 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 and how, do we, how do we sort of grasp that? How do we conceptualize it? I, I, the way I approached it in, in this article was just simply to pull out a few key terms that, that seemed to jump at me, that seemed to characterize the quality of uh, relationships, of processes in, in urban settings. And, and the, the words that, that I, I pulled out were, were quantity, were density, diversity, complexity, and capacity. Um, are those the right words? Are they, you know, does that encapsulate all that's different? Probably not. I mean, there are other things. One could easily have thrown out the word system or the word anonymity. Or I mean, there are other things there that you might want to pull out as being specifically distinctive about urban settings and specifically distinctive about how you uh, engage with individuals and households within that setting. Which can kind of brings me to another problem that we have as a... As a as a set of uh, actors in, a, in an urban setting, as a set of agencies engaged in trying to support people affected by conflict, crisis, uh, disaster, displacement. A lot of the habits that we have as institutions are based around targeting individuals or households. Uh, and that creates fundamental problems and fundamental uh, issues when you're, when you're engaging in, a, uh, in an urban setting where, as we said, there are more people in, uh, you know, compressed together in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, where the density is higher, where there is a diversity of, of, uh, of characteristics and conditions. And 
One of the things that we, we, you know, one of the sort of blind alleys we often go down, I feel, as, as humanitarian uh, interveners in these settings is to say, well, you know, how do I, how do I, um, how do I find the refugee? How do I find the displaced person? How do I find that target beneficiary that I and my donor are looking for, right? And, and that's actually kind of the wrong question to be asking, and it's the wrong uh, approach, in my opinion, to, to solving problems faced both by those individuals you think you ought to be looking for and by the people around them. Um, so I think that's one of the kind of fundamental struggles and, and, and why we have difficulty getting to specifics a lot of the time. And so we often get involved in some very um, uh, meandering conversations about how to, how to really get to that specificity of what's important in an urban setting. And for me, what's important is, is, is really to take a step back, to, to not approach this as, you know, how do I adapt my program to this urban setting, but really look at what are the problems being faced uh, in this setting, what is, what is affecting the wider population in this setting, what are the capacities that are available within that setting to deal with those problems, and how can I, as an outsider, support that? And thanks, uh, Alyosha. Um, I mean, I guess moving or building on that, I, I understand that IRC has developed successful partnerships, um, you know, addressing some of these issues. In, with municipalities dealing with urban displacement in a number of cities, and I think some of them include Kampala, Amman, and possibly Athens. Yeah. And I just wondered if you could tell us why you think such partnerships are important, and maybe how IRC has gone about creating them. Yeah. You know, what are the key things that one has to do or key elements of that? Sure. So there's actually quite a few of them, and so, you know, even spanning to such... Um, unlikely locations as Paris, uh, Milano, um, uh, Thessaloniki, sort of places we don't always talk about in a kind of humanitarian uh, way, um, but, but equally into, into Nairobi, into other, other, uh, other cities as well. And I think, um, so oftentimes these have come about, these partnerships have come about uh, initially with this sense of us bringing some sort of um, outside expertise, outside technical expertise that was in demand by the city at that time due to a movement of population in most cases. Um, and so we were able to come in as that somewhat sort of privileged outsider with the technical expertise that was in demand. But what we rapidly found is that um, actually there was, there was a huge disconnect between, um, uh, between different actors involved in that urban setting. You didn't have, you, you don't always have very um, joined up conversations between donors, national government, uh, intervening actors, and the municipal government. And we found that by, you know, adopting a bit of a kind of humble and um, uh, open approach to this, we were actually able to then work in a, in a as a convener, as a, as a, um, as a, almost like a, as a guide to some of the complexities of operating with the, with the international aid and <coughs> development system. Um, and that has then, you know, been able, off the back of that, we've really been able to form uh, quite productive relationships that are then leading us into all sorts of different avenues and helping us to rethink how we define a programmatic intervention or what we might bring to the table. Um, and at the same time, uh, hoping that we, we're able to um, bring uh, a, a, a body of knowledge, a set of relationships, 
and some uh, and to open some doors for our for our partners in in different municipal governments who also are interested to understand better this slightly uh, uh, crazy world of humanitarian actors and and humanitarian development donors. Um, so it's it's a two-way street, and I think there's been a, a a good flow of information and learning across the different um, bodies and groups. Yeah, and I I, I suppose I think um, your colleague uh, Samir Saliba. Um, in, in his article also highlighted the fact that it, it is about that relationship Absolutely. building, isn't it? Because often we want to focus on the development of a new tool, and tools are very useful and important, but on their own, they're not going to necessarily do the things that we want them to do. So that relationship building, I think, is uh, Absolutely, and, and I think oftentimes there's, a, there's either yeah. a, a, um, a sense that uh, relationship building takes time and I don't have time, I'm a busy humanitarian, I've got to respond, you know, I have my log frame I have to report against and, and all this sort of thing. And other times I think there's also a, a, a barrier that comes from, from perhaps not knowing how to navigate one's way uh, in relation to uh, a, a, an urban uh, uh, municipal government or, or, or the systems and, and so on that one finds there. I mean, one of the great things, and, and speaking about Sam Saliba in particular, one of the great things that we've been able to do is mobilize this kind of urban planning expertise and knowledge of, of, uh, of cities and, and, and how cities work elsewhere to then have a different type of conversation and, and start a different type of relationship, which is, I think, also very, very conducive to, to building that trust and, and, and better you know, starting point for an exchange of ideas. Thanks. Um, Diane, moving on to you. Um, Diane, I wonder first, before we get into, I've got a question or two for you, but before we get into that, I wonder if you could just tell the, the group a bit about some of the research that has informed this humanitarian exchange. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, so as you mentioned before, we've just completed a three-year program called the Urban Crises Learning Fund, funded by DFID. And um, that has generated around 80 different pieces of, uh, or different publications, uh, briefings, research papers, toolkits, some of which are outside uh, for you to pick up, and also has um, informed some of the papers in this special issue as well of Humanitarian Exchange. We had um, four separate calls for proposals, um, which generated research um, around the world, really, in Asia, Africa, Middle East, also Latin America on a variety of topics. And we also had two learning consortia, one led by IRC with NRC and World Vision, and one led by Habitat for Humanity with Oxfam, ODI, and UCL, um, which uh, separately, the IRC one developed some tools um, and guidance notes for use of these tools specific um, to urban areas. And the Habitat for Humanity Humanity Consortia um, investigated uh, using uh, Haiti and Bangladesh as two case study countries, uh, various approaches to accountability to affected populations, but also thematic issues like uh, water and sanitation. So that's uh, in the special issue as well. Mm. Thanks for that. Um, Diane, I, humanitarian agencies, and I think um, Eliosha has already uh, mentioned this, you know, they've, they've started to recognize the need to do things differently in urban settings. But as we know, you know, responses still fall short. So how do you see the relationship between humanitarian agencies and the local population? I mean, is now the time to develop better links between humanitarian and development interventions, for example? Thanks, Wendy. I, I think definitely um, there is a realization now that there is a need for better linkages or 
between humanitarian and development interventions when we're looking at urban contexts, um, and also that this provides an entry point for resilience thinking, so for implementing forward-looking interventions that prepare for the best possible recovery um, and best possible future um, post-crisis. It's also a chance, I suppose, to try and address the various global agendas, the, social, uh, the sustainable development goals, the new urban agenda, the climate change, um, uh, agreements. Basically, there is the opportunity to build local capacities to address these various inter international agreements through humanitarian interventions as well as development interventions, and particularly so if we do them hand in hand. So I suppose there are three, three things perhaps that um, humanitarian agencies working um, in urban settings um, could do when taking a more forward-looking perspective, which is firstly to recognize that they are operating in places that often already have existing deficiencies even before the crisis in question. So around the world we have one billion people living in informal settlements. If there is then the added pressure of a displaced population or a major disaster, that creates a whole different scale of need as well. Uh, we also need to recognize the potential for future shocks and stresses, including climate change. So in the response, are we making sure that uh, households that get relocated aren't put in a place that means that they're vulnerable to sea level rise 10 years down the line, for example? And I think we also need to recognize that urban areas don't exist on their own. They're linked to their hinterland in terms of flows of people, but also flows of goods and natural resources. They rely on natural resources outside the city as well. Um, so bearing all of that in mind, I think um, building on what uh, Alyosha said, complexity, diversity, capacity um, that exists in cities, I think we can make the most of those by taking a more collective approach and building from or building on past urban development experience, particularly um, the uh, approach of area-based approaches um, has many similarities to uh, slum upgrading approaches that have been applied quite successfully around the world um, through uh, processes of participation um, and co-production to ensure more integrated urban development. So there are lots of opportunities there for area-based approaches to build on that type of um, experience in the past. And this also helps uh, local affected populations to uh, develop their capacities in various ways, to build social capital, to be empowered in negotiating with different actors in the urban area, um, to develop skills in construction or managing finances, and also just the process of engaging in in uh, reconstruction or supplying services and negotiating with the state can be a process of rehabilitation after a crisis. So um, I think um, there is definitely a need, um, as Alyosha said, for humanitarians to understand the local landscape of multiple providers, both the formal sector and the informal sector, for example, in provision of water, provision of housing, and so on, and how can uh, humanitarian interventions complement these rather than displace them, um, and at the same time ensure that their interventions uh, support urban planning, approaches, um, which often takes time. So how to integrate a humanitarian intervention with existing urban development plans, regional plans, climate change assessments, uh, action pl 
climate change action plans. There's scope here for the humanitarian agencies to provide technical support to do this hand in hand uh, with the, the intervention that addresses the crises. Um, and I think as well, um, humanitarian agencies are well placed to play an advocacy role to ensure a more inclusive urban uh, recovery and development approach. So municipalities might be more accountable to their electorate, whereas humanitarian agencies might be more focused on addressing the needs of particularly vulnerable populations such as displaced or uh, refugees. So um, there's a role here for humanitarian agencies to advocate for a more inclusive approach and also applying approaches like uh, area-based approaches can also help address this, um, these divisions or potential divisions by focusing on an area rather than um, individuals, as it were. Right. Thank you, Diane. I'm actually going to move on, I think, mm -hmm. to, to David, because uh, we've talked, uh, mentioned area-based approaches quite a lot. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm wondering whether we can get, David's got a couple of slides, I think, that you, you wanted to put up there. And I mean, as, as I think Diane and, and both uh, Alyosha mentioned, you know, we know that area-based approaches um, are being used more and more. And a lot of people, uh, I mean, you've highlighted 10 principles for enacting post-disaster urban area-based approaches. And I think it would be really helpful if you could uh, go through those for us and tell us how they've been used in the, in the sector. Great. Well, thank you very much, Wendy, and thank you for being here. Uh, I think you summed it up, Diane, that area-based approaches fundamentally are taking the best of what we understand from developmental work, working in planning and design and spatial awareness relating to towns and cities. So I, I think you, you said it well, talking about villages, and we have a rich heritage of working mostly in rural settings. I'd say ABAs comes from a heritage of working in urban areas of so 30, 40 years or more at, at the very least. And so the summary is, the takeaway I'd hope is that we're, we're learning from what's gone on forever because essentially post-disaster recovery and reconstruction you could say is a developmental issue, especially if it's with low-income, more marginalized communities such as the neighborhoods you mentioned, Diane. Uh, I just want to share two, two diagrams. Uh, this in fact is from a different paper. but. The point here is it's people in the center. I mean, it's good mainstream development stuff with people and local governance, and they're in the center. And I suppose it's slightly cheeky to then contrast it with the cluster model. And the cluster system is, is a good system. However, many, not least IRC, would comment that the cluster system is not working very well when it comes to urban. So the, the sort of slight deceit of this is, and conceit, I suppose, is to pop people in the middle and sectors are around. And the idea of scaling up, uh, one of the problems, as we know, in urban areas is, is the isolated project. That's very nice in that neighborhood, and a lot's gone on, but the one next door has nothing. And so definitional sort of thinking that, that we added in this piece of work, which in fact came from the, the project that Diane mentioned from the IOC one as well, uh, relates to adding this idea of scale up. And the issue is who scales up and how. And of course, good developmental thinking is local ownership and not owned by the agency. The last thing you want is that we did it, they did it, as opposed to we own it, and all those issues of ownership and all those things. If I could have the second the second diagram, please. So, so these are the 10 principles. I, I, I suspect I'd bore you to death if I went through all 10 of them. Uh, but what we tried to do in this piece of research, in fact, we interviewed a number of people, real 
really experienced people, all of them except one who also brought a lot to it, 25 to 30 years worth of experience working all over the world doing all this. And we tried to collate and collect what they were saying uh, and add to the, all the literature and all those things. And we came out with 10 principles, I suppose, tied to as best we could the project management cycle as we have it, traditional as though that is, and just picking out some, well, I was going to say no particular order, but to start with the first one, um, multi-sector assessments. It's no surprise to anybody that we should be multi-sectoral, and that works as well for rural as well as urban, of course. But the argument is, I mean, the summary for all this is cities are really complicated, complex, as much as what you don't see is happening as, as what you do, in fact, way more. And so we need to combine and organize and set up working collaboratively across sectors. Our sectoral approaches aren't fit for purpose when it comes to the complexity of people's lives. That, there'll be another summary, and I'm happy to talk about that and point to the background is why we say that. Number two, focus on location while well, they're area-based approaches. I suppose the point there is is not so much, again, the sectors and what we deliver, but if you like, what, what, what the demand is. Recognizing as much as one can the complexity of real life, where it's not about the helpless victim and, and we're stuck and here it is. It's actually getting on with life and these things happen. Diane mentioned the resilience agenda. I think resilience plays very well to this, how we see more the totality of lives and we don't see the isolated person, the, the victim, which of course people who survive disasters aren't. Uh, thirdly, realistic timeframes. Uh, the paper also in the Humanitarian Exchange written by our, our colleagues at um, CRS. Concern. Concern, excuse mm. me, concern. Um, and linked to CRS and Haiti, yes. sorry, uh, with concern, a really nice paper. They talk about as one of their four conclusions, it takes time. No surprise there, they were talking about two, five, 10, 30 year timeframes. That's the reality of the city, and as we all know the project cycle of donors, for, 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 for reasons that are not, not bad or wrong per se, are often shorter. So how do you use your aid as an investment for longer term recovery? What, what, what is it you put in? And cities are places of commerce and markets and competition. What are your investments as a way of seeing it? Number four, people-centered approaches. Whose reality counts? The Robert Chambers thinking from, well, 23 years ago now. Whose reality counts? It's not the agency, it's people themselves. And of course, the quicker you give away interventions and don't own them and ideally never own them in the first place is the point where you get to some of the ideas about longer term investments. Uh, working with other structures, of course, they're cities. So there are gatekeepers, there are gangs, there are, there are groups you never see. There are in tribal societies, whole kind of chieftaincy systems, things we never talk about nor understand and never will probably, but at least the recognition these exist. Uh, collaborating sectors and programs, of course, coming back to the idea that we're always working collaboratively and never never separately. I'm whistling through this, but there's more in the, in the exchange which summarized these things. Uh, a really dull but important one, nimble internal systems. Those we interviewed were uh, invariably from larger organizations. HR, finance uh, have their own missions and needs and appropriateness. And of, of course, you know, who would say anything other than that's vital? But the argument here is that ABAs need a different approach, that agencies need to think differently because this is long-term developmental thinking actually, and HR and finance and other functions have a critical role to play in aligning itself to flexibility. And that brings me on to adaptive management, some of the work that Ben Ramlingen and Chambers again are doing at IDS. Adaptive management, really interesting that we mentioned the log frame, which we all, we all love. And you know, Marmite moment of the log frame. Um, I actually think they're quite good. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> but adaptive management is trying to go one step further about flexible systems, about open-endedness, about being more responsive and less fixed, which we, we all know for decades is important. But if we're thinking in an urban area where Thursday is different to Wednesday afternoon, um, 
again, we, we need to think and plan in those ways. And there's a lot of work going on at IDS on this whole adaptive management world, and it's really interesting. Final two, planning for scale-up. It's no good if it remains a little project. We were discussing this, and there's a cost there. So again, it should not be for a big agency to be doing that. It's about local ownership and investing for long-term recovery, where you leave as quickly as possible, in inverted commas, or have a long-term engagement before or after as part of the long game of engaging. And then finally, the contribution, not attribution. Again, a reflection, the city is so complicated, and this is the work of Roger Few and Vivian Walden, been doing this forever, that actually you measure what's the contribution an agency makes as opposed to the, the individual measurable. And that's a step change for donors as well, to be, you know, f for not wrong reasons, of course, tracking money, and we're in an age here and in this country where, where again, for, for good reasons, we need to to know that, and at the same time in urban areas, letting go is a dangerous phrase, especially ODI, <laughs> your letting go report, but, but, but um, measuring in different ways, what's your contribution, because it's the collective. Thank you, David. Um, I think we've got Daniel on the line now from Kabul, is that right? Where he was, if I missed my opportunity. Can you hear me? Yes, hi, Daniel, welcome, and I'm sorry. Hi, I'm sorry that we couldn't uh, connect earlier with you. Um, no, I'm sorry, I had some issues, yeah. No, no, that's no problem at all. Um, since I s seem to struggle to find my bi biographic notes, I wonder if you could just introduce yourself briefly to the audience here. I'm going to ask uh, Ruta a question first, and then come on to you to talk about the, uh, the impact of the project since uh, 2017. So please go ahead and introduce yourself. All right, sure. Um, so my name is Daniel. I'm currently working as the Country Hub uh, Program Coordinator for Danish Refugee Council here in Afghanistan. Um, and I've been working here with them for the last four months. And Ruta, who was here previously, was also working on this program. So she uh, can also provide some insight into uh, the work that we've been doing here. I mean, my first question, and, and I Rita actually wrote an article for the exchange on this uh, project. Um, we know that the urban areas in Afghanistan have changed hugely in the last, um, you know, recent years. And in Kabul, I understand the population's grown by 4.5% annually between 2010 and 2015. So this has put enormous pressure on the urban infrastructure and employment. It's, it's prompted a significant outflow of the wealthier more educated Afghans. Um, and I know DRC has implemented this interesting new programming approach in urban centers in Afghanistan to try to address the needs of the long-term displaced. And I just wondered if you could tell us what's different about this approach. Um, sure. It might be easiest if I actually go back to how we started. Sure. Because we started by taking a look at um, the programming that we were doing um, in Kabul um, and looking at what the strengths and disadvantages were. And we found, as Aloysia said, that we were extremely tied to log frames. We did cash programming that was designed to target the most vulnerable people coming in from areas that had been taken over by, um, by armed opposition groups. They were the poorest of the poor. We gave them enough to survive one month, and that was it. In another corner of the city, we did, um, we did programming designed to support general protection outcomes. And in a third corner of the city, we did programming um, that was targeted a little bit more at the longer term displaced and also those who might consider uh, emigrating outside of Kabul. The links between the programs, to be honest, were not strong. So in terms of what that means in terms of impact, 
it means we're not doing what we can. So we step back to say, okay, what's happening with people and how can we do it differently? An urban area, or Kabul in particular, was basically in, a two, in the center of a two-way crunch. So people were coming in from areas that had been affected by conflict. People were going out because of the pressure on infrastructure and the opportunities that were elsewhere. Within the flow of people, we as DRC wanted to see where we could place ourselves in order to be useful to people, basically. So the first thing we tried to do was see where people went. When people came in uh, after a conflict, the first thing they did was register with the government authorities. Um, then they moved out to peri-urban areas uh, where, they, where they did their best to make a living. People closer to the center were also were more likely to be wealthy and were more likely to emigrate abroad. People further out were more likely to not be well off and to, have, to be struggling just to overcome the consequences of having moved after a conflict. In terms of what that meant the DRC could do in a combined way, honestly, it was difficult. You look at all this movement and you say, well, what am I supposed to do about this? And so we figured that the best thing we could do was follow where people were. So if people were coming in from a conflict, we could set up something close to the first place they went. That was the government offices. At that same center, we could attract people who were better off and who were looking for increased opportunities. For the people who went out to urban areas and who settled in urban areas, that's the most vulnerable, most affected by conflict, we could set up smaller scale um, community centers, basically. Um, and in all of the centers, we could provide all of our services. So basically, if you went to a center, whether it was in the center of town or outside, you could access a wide range of services and it wasn't a kind of a situation of us sticking to our log frame. It was a question of us saying, this is what we have, what do you need? And if you need more, how can we get it? So that was the principle that we started off with. Um, so the idea was to say, where are people moving? Where do urban areas fit within this movement? And where can we as a humanitarian actors put ourselves? The first thing was that that required stepping back from what we were currently doing. It required throwing the log frames out of the window, at least for a day. After that, um, after the, conf uh, the concept was developed together with all the program managers, honestly, it took a long time to convince donors of things, um, and it took a long time to set up um, a system that was adequately flexible. Um, one of the things, uh, we had quite a bit of luck um, with donors, because once we started setting up, we found that uh, what was happening in the centers wasn't always what we expected. Uh, the Kabul was a typical example. We had a child-friendly space that we anticipated would be used by displaced people when they came to the center. We anticipated they would drop off their kids, go to a government office, get um, register at the government office and come back for their kids. But to our surprise, we found host community, communities basically using the child-friendly center as, as a nursery. Now, normally in day-to-day -day humanitarian operations, you get panicked. I'm not, going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to reach my targets. What am I going to do? This really sucks. But actually what we did was we went back to the donor and we said, this isn't meeting the need we thought we it would, but it's meeting another need that was not addressed that actually could be equally important and is equally important if you want to address, like, if you want to address migration as a whole in Kabul. And in that respect, we were lucky. We had donors that listened to us and let us keep, let us keep on going. 
um, at a certain point in time, we found that we placed too much emphasis on the hub in, like, on the, hub in the centre. We needed to also start doing more in peri-urban areas where there were people who were more vulnerable, and we needed to change our approach. So if I'm not mistaken, and this is where I think I should switch to Daniel, uh, we're looking now at, um, at basically changing the emphasis more to uh, peri-urban areas and away from central, uh, central centres. But basically the difference in it was, base, was stepping back from what we're doing, trying to think about where people are going and trying to think about what we can do along their route. Thanks for that, Rita. Daniel, I wonder if you wanted to add to that and maybe talk a bit about um, some of the lessons that have been learned sort of a year on from, from this approach having mm -hmm. been fully implemented. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, sure. Um, so, I mean, it's, as Ruta said, it's, it's been challenging and it's definitely been um, a learning process. Um, our, our community centers are primarily placed in urban and peri-urban areas. Um, and what we've noticed there is that um, because you have so many different fragmented populations within these urban areas, uh, community acceptance uh, has become uh, even more important uh, in setting up these community centers and getting people interested in, in coming to the centers and accessing the services. Um, and also access becomes more of a technical issue. Um, so a lot of people, uh, they would travel some, some, some communities might be in the immediate vicinity of the community centers, but there's also people that are further out that are also interested in the services. And for them to be able to access uh, these centers, um, often the, the cost of that transportation can be a barrier for them to come and access these centers. Um, so that becomes a big sort of consideration when we're trying to set up uh, you know, these different sites. Um, also, outreach and coordination take on a very different set of challenges. Um, for example, uh, in these sort of urban settings, you've got a lot more actors and opportunities um, that you're essentially competing with. Uh, so it's difficult to get the attention of communities and to keep that attention. Um, a lot of the uh, activities that we provide are uh, very much focused on information sharing, awareness raising. We also provide direct services, but those are often limited uh, due to limited resources. And there we have to be more selective. Uh, but I think one, one thing where we managed to be quite successful is to uh, convey the community centers um, as a place that anyone can access and as a place that you know, primarily provides information, referrals, uh, and a, a place where people can come to access other uh, service providers and even uh, get information about how to uh, get support from the government. Um, so I think that's worked quite well. Um, another sort of key learning point um, has been that uh, because we're working in a setting, um, we're, we're working in a, in a protracted crisis setting um, so you have populations that have been displaced almost five years ago, but then you also have new populations that are being displaced to these areas, um, you know, on a regular basis. So it's, it's a setting, uh, we're not exactly working in an emergency setting, but we're also not working in a development setting, we're somewhere in between. Um, and it's hard to sort of uh, figure out, you know, what kind of support should we be focusing on. Um, so some of the activities that we provide are more targeted towards new displacements, 
but then some of the other services that we provide also look at the more protracted uh, displaced populations. Um, but all of this, uh, it comes with a cost. Um, so setting up these community centers is a very expensive uh, process. Um, and it takes time uh, for people to become aware of these community centers, to access them. Um, so that, that impact, it takes a long time to develop. Um, so that's something we're sort of struggling with and trying to, uh, trying to address uh, as we keep working on this program. Daniel, thanks for that. I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your relationship with the government. How do you work with the government? Um, at what level? And, and do you think their engagement has, they've been sufficiently engaged? Or you've been sufficiently engaged with them? So uh, from, this, from, this, from the get-go of, uh, of this program, we actually placed uh, the first centers Right next to uh, next, right next to the government, uh, and th so that they would have a direct link uh, to the community center, and they would refer people to that community center. This hasn't happened very strongly. Um, so what a lot of the so the government was that. So this is the Ministry of Refugees and Repatriation. Right. Thanks. Sorry. Go ahead. So this this hasn't happened um, that well. Um, so a lot of our beneficiaries and referrals are coming from other sources. Um, and in fact, uh, because we've got what some of these centers located closer to, uh, to the ministry, we're not actually close to, the, to a lot of the communities that we're actually trying to serve. Um, so that's, that's a challenge that we're trying to address now. Um, another, in terms of other coordination with the government, um, one challenge that I've noticed is that um, uh, in designing sort of smaller community initiatives and, and trying to target uh, uh, communities in the sort of peri-urban areas, uh, you also sort of face a challenge of uh, which ministry is sort of the responsible uh, governing body for that area. Because there's also not a clear definition for which areas are considered rural and which areas are considered urban. Um, so often uh, we faced issues where we'd actually create competition between uh, the ministry responsible for the rural areas and the ministry responsible for the urban areas um, because they're all trying to get that support. Um, so those kinds of uh, challenges um, have been difficult. Um, and we try to work with all the, all the ministries um, to ensure that uh, you know, we're targeting the most vulnerable populations. Thanks. Uh, Ruta, do you have anything to add to that? Just a, one <clears throat> brief um, addition, which is about uh, implementation of the same project in different contexts or similar concepts in different contexts. Um, DRC has also been, is in the initial phases of setting up similar programming in Iran. And the relationship with the government, um, honestly, it's a night and day difference between Afghanistan and Iran. Um, in Iran, uh, the government is actually actively looking to start up similar centers in locations where they already have quite a lot of activities. And they're looking to develop synergies and, um, and they're looking for them to do the outreach to Afghans and for DRC and other similar NGOs to, um, to teach them how to do it. So it's a nice, it's a nice sustainability measure sometimes, but 
it's not at all like that in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, both the low capacity of the government and the challenges involved in having so many NGOs interact with the government um, means that the relationship is a lot less strong and it's a lot harder to create similar linkages. So. Mm -hmm. Does anybody want to, anybody else want to, to comment on this particular from the panel? <coughs> I think this is a really interesting example because, and I, what I really appreciated about your article too was how honest you were about the challenges that you faced and, you know, outlining how you move to the sort of thinking and the position that you're in now. And I think that's what's really helpful about the humanitarian exchange and something we struggle actually to get authors to do. Most want to talk about just how wonderful their programs were and how well they worked and uh, trying to get people to talk about the things that, you know, that didn't go so well and how they had to adapt them and what they didn't understand to begin with is, is quite a challenge. So thank you for that. Diane. I found it really interesting to hear about the uh, community centers and uh, the role that they play in providing access to information to displaced populations, uh, for example. And I think the research that IID has been involved in has shown that often refugee groups themselves that are more established can also play that role in certain contexts. So, for example, in Kampala, which receives quite a lot of different uh, refugee uh, populations from Somalia, Congo, also IDPs um, from Acholi um, area. The Somali community plays quite a, a dominant role in sort of receiving new arrivals and helping them get up, get set up with a local business and so on. Similarly, the Congolese uh, refugees, when they arrive, there are Congolese church groups that help support them and have centers that provide support and so on. So I wonder if that's also an entry point in places where such communities exist where humanitarian agencies can support these existing mechanisms that might be quite self-sustaining as well in the longer term. Um, other research in Delhi as well, looking at um, refugees from Afghanistan, um, showed that church spaces played a very important role as a place for refugee communities to gather, especially in a, in a setting where they felt quite marginalized because they were not from the dominant religious groups and that the churches were safe spaces where they felt they could have commun uh, community activities and um, well, so they received support from NGOs as well. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, I guess just to sort of follow from that, my, my, my initial reaction is very similar, but flipped around the other way, was just to sort of say, well, what were people doing under other circumstances? So in the absence of there being a center in a peri-urban area or, or, or wherever, how were people accessing information? What, what kind of networks were they building anyway? And, and again, was there something that you could build from with that? Um, okay, so basically the way it works the way it works for people coming into Kabul is that communities, well, people travel in groups. Uh, people travel in groups and there's a group, uh, there's elders. The elders appoint a representative to go to uh, government agencies to file a petition to try to get support. Um, and that one person is also the person who brings back information because he's the, he's the representative of the community elsewhere. For all intents and purposes, what that means is that person's a gate gatekeeper. If you have a good gatekeeper, fantastic. Nothing to worry about. But if you don't have a good gatekeeper, then not so good. 
it doesn't work so well in terms of outcomes for the average person in the community. Um, so, yeah, it was basically a gatekeeper model. And even if you take a look at mixed migration flows for Afghans, um, it's something similar. People travel in groups and there's, right, there's one person who often does the representing. Thanks, Ruta. Um, Daniel, I'm going to uh, ask you to stay on the line if, if you can and if the connection can be maintained because we're going to open the floor now to our audience in the room and online for questions and comments. And some of them may be directed uh, to you. So is that all right? Yes, sure, I'd be happy to. Okay, great. Um, so we've got about 35 minutes or so for this next session. And I want to open the floor first to the uh, audience in the room. I've got several questions online too, so if nobody raises their hand, I'll move straight to the uh, online audience. So please, the, the floor is yours. Could you please identify yourself and um, let us know if you're directing your question to any panelist in particular. Any, any questions or, or comments? Gentleman in the first row. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Is it on? Okay. Uh, my name's Jonathan Parkinson. I work for IMC Worldwide. Um, my question uh, isn't specific to any particular panelist, um, but it's about area-based approaches. And I'd just like to explore whether it's really the area or is it the community within the area that is the focus of the humanitarian assistance? Thank, Thank you. you. I'm going to take two or three questions before I go back to our panelists. Anyone else in the room? post-lunch period. Oh, we've got somebody here. Good afternoon. My name is Kitty. I work for Plan UK. Um, I used to work uh, for DRC in Afghanistan, so I know the HOPS project very well, I think. Um, but I have another question, um, and I think it's mainly directed at Alicia, but anybody is free to, uh, to answer. It's more, I think, a general observation is that in general, but also here in this discussion, there's not a uh, talk about the political agenda, because I think in urban context specifically, they have a high risk of a political agenda, which is being um, put into the humanitarian context and the response. So I was wondering um, if anybody would like to comment on that about um, analysis being done on that, and also I think how to specifically address that um, from an implementation point. Okay, thanks very much. Anybody else? Front row here. We'll take one more in the back uh, after that. Hi, this is Amelia from CARE. Um, in terms of the Afghanistan project, um, at first I was like, oh, okay, this is almost like an anti-area-based approach in terms of um, setting up a, a, focal, a focus point where people can come to you for needs. Um, and I'm wondering, just through your sort of monitoring um, an evaluation of the project so far, you notice that host communities have been very much um, one of the main um, group of beneficiaries. Has it in inadvertently become quite geographically focused, or is it almost like a network rather than a, a network of people rather than a geographic focus of people that are using the services? Okay, thank you. And final question, Simon. <coughs> Thank you very much. 
thinking about Simon, could you introduce yourself? Oh, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Simon Levine from HPG upstairs. <laughs> um, thinking about what's, what's different about urban, the specificity yeah, of, uh, of urban response. I was, I was interested in, in the 10 principles for working in urban environments. And I was interested to hear comments on which of those 10 principles um, you think are not relevant to working in rural or non-urban environments. Okay, thank you very much. Um, what I, I think I'll do is I'll start with maybe Daniel, um, just to make sure we don't lose him, and I'll just move around the panelists. You don't have to answer every question, just answer those that are either directed to you or you, you feel you want to address. Daniel? Mm -hmm. um, sure, thanks Wendy. Um, I'll, I'll start with the question about um, the, the types of people that are accessing the community centers uh, here in Afghanistan. Um, uh, I, I'd say we, we have seen a, a shift over the last year uh, in terms of the types of uh, communities that are accessing the, the community centers, um, but it also varies from uh, province to province um, depending on where the the community centers are located within those urban uh, areas in those cities. Um, we do we do try to prioritize um, partly because of our uh, our project and our log frame. Uh, in some in some of the community centers, we do prioritize undocumented returnees. Um, so these are Afghans who are returning from Iran and Pakistan. Um, so that's mainly in sort of the southern areas of Afghanistan. Uh, whereas in Kabul, um, it is still largely the host community population um, that is accessing the community center. Um, but I think it's also um, very hard to say, you know, that they're, that these people are host community because they were also previously returnees or IDPs, uh, maybe two, three years uh, further back down the line. Um, so it's it's very hard to say, you know, are these people... Uh, newly displaced, or you know, are they more or less vulnerable than uh, uh, than other people? Um, it's very hard to say. Uh, we try to keep an open door um, to all populations, uh, and we try to also communicate that the services that we're providing are accessible uh, to all these populations. Um, and I think we've uh, we've seen that uh, that have an effect also because we are seeing more of a balance between the different types of populations that come to our centers. And I guess one of the other questions, maybe Ruta, you could address this, is um, Amelia's question about this being sort of in inadvertently an anti-area-based approach, but has it turned into a geographically focused one? Is it more of a network-based network, uh, network -based I mean, program? I think the, the aim is definitely to make a network so that as people move, they can access different centers. Um, does it take time to do it? Yes. I mean, especially in Afghanistan, you're dealing with a really kind of entrenched humanitarian response. The same things have been done for ages. So to to get everybody to kind of move in a different direction is, is a bit challenging. Um, it's, so the short of it is, um, it's not intended as an area-based approach. It's intended as a network-based approach, but it's not there yet. Um, and maybe that goes partially to the question of the difference between an area and a community-based approach. I think um, an area consists of several communities, some of which may be very transitory. I think that's 
like some of um, if I think about working in Kabul, for instance, you can have several IDP groups in one area. Um, a community center would be designed to target one of those groups, but one of those groups might also flee or leave if there were problems with another community or a natural resource. Um, the area, the area-based approach, basically sets something up so that several different kind of sub-communities can access the something and theoretically can kind of work out ways of sharing resources and stuff like that, but we've not done that yet. I think, though, that in your centers, if I remember from the article, you did in the centers offer different packages of different services to different people based on your assessment of what the needs were, and those assessments were made by um, Afghan people who were working with you as well initially. So there's an element of, of that, too, isn't there? Okay, um, David, I'll just move down the row if that's okay. Great. Well, I'd love to take two of those, the first and the last one. Simon, I was looking at these ten principles, and I think they all apply equally to rural. I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever as principles, because I think they're good practice principles about how aid agencies should work with people from a developmental perspective. And so Robert Chambers is right up there, you know, the, the chief proponent of PRA, rural appraisal. So I have no problem with that. That doesn't mean I think that um, the programming in urban areas is, is at all similar to rural, because uh, I think they're principles, and I think how you enact those principles then is different. Uh, I long ago stopped trying to even think about the idea of comparing the two, because forget it, don't even bother. And of course, if you look at the work of Neil Brenner, or of all the people from Harvard, there's no such thing as rural urban difference. To have urban means there's something that's not urban. Actually, everything is that. So there's a whole world there to discuss that, where our fundamental understanding of what a city is is different. Uh, one definition is uh, you can talk about density, where most people aren't farmers. Um, and what's the other one? Um, density, most people aren't farmers, then something else. Well, that definition works quite well to cruise ships as much as it does to cities. And if you were in Nepal a couple of years ago, an awful lot of villages became cities. So there's, there's a lot of thing about, and certainly, I don't know what you think or you think, but once you start to compare and contrast rural and urban, forget it. But I would say there's a principles, and how you then do it, I think, is, 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 is different in many ways, because I, I don't think it's the same thing. I, I, th I, th I think it's different. Uh, just, just on your point, yes. Um, I think my understanding of area-based approaches is neighborhood approaches, is community-based approaches, a way of seeing a group of people, which is not perfect, because, you know, taxi drivers are a community of practice, whatever it might be. There, that's just a spatial way of putting it. I, and I understand it, as I understand it, because it comes from a planning um, tradition which is, you know, physical. Um, Alicia mentioned uh, systems. We could talk about systems or complexity in the same kind of way, or morphology, or we could choose a different one. And it seems to be that a lot of people have chosen a planning-based one, and so we're running with that one. But yes, communities, neighborhoods, people. I suppose one of the, I'm, I'm guessing, Simon, but maybe one of the underlying points of your question, or something that's certainly come up in one of the other, other articles in the exchange is, Again, and, and um, Alyosha has also uh, talked about this, the difficulty of that sort of specificity or where it's appropriate to apply it or not, if at all. And uh, there's an interesting article at the end of the edition written by um, Elena Carpi and, is it Elisa or Elena Carpi and Camilla, Camilla Buono about the border towns in sort of the Syria area, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, and about how, you know, it, 
this, this kind of push to focus on the urban, they're worried about us losing those kind of nuances, looking at people who may be living in a peri-urban area, but they're actually still relying on agriculture for their, their livelihoods. And there are things that we may not be understanding about the way that they, they live and operate when we're too, um, too sort of specific or rigid sometimes in our um, definitions or approaches. Um, Diane. Yeah. So just briefly on the uh, area-based approaches one, I think because one of the key principles of an ABA is that it's participatory, uh, you essentially do need a community to make it feasible, but that community can also be self-defined as, as well as geographically. So you might have religious communities within an area and different neighborhoods um, within that area. So I think it's a, a, a mix of the two. Um, on the political question, um, I suppose if, if you take politics to be about power relations, essentially, um, then very clearly um, refugees or displaced populations in cities will face many similar challenges um, to other low-income populations or marginalized populations living in informal settlements, working in the informal sector in the city. Um, who will uh, of very often be um, persecuted or as market traders, for example, if the municipality has a policy of trying to clear street vendors or they may face um, exploitation by employers or by landlords. Um, so, but on top of that, uh, displaced populations might face additional language barriers or legal barriers. They might have no legal recourse if they do suffer any abuse or exploitation. Um, and they might also be more exposed to sort of negative law enforcement or corrupt practices. And I think this is where um, there is a role for humanitarian agencies to act as advocates for this particular group of uh, marginalized populations that might face additional challenges on top of those of the informal sector, recognizing as well that informal is not necessarily bad and that it's essential for many people to earn a livelihood and that it would be too much of a nasty to us, uh, the humanitarian sector, to try and resolve all those problems, but at least to ensure that uh, displaced populations or re refugee populations within the city are not overly exposed to exploitation or um, abuse uh, because of their status. And part of that is political as well. And maybe by, maybe uh, um, Alyosha will go into this a bit more, but um, also looking at the political agenda as part of analyzing the context, mm. um, which I think everyone has uh, mentioned yeah. is important. Yeah. Alyosha. Yeah, tricky. Um, so I think, I mean, in a sense, to, to Simon's question and, and to Katie's as well, I think the, the, the answer lies somewhere around sort of level of intensity almost or something. There's something about... Um, because a lot, of what, a lot of what we're talking about is, is just better aid practice, like good practices, just doing things that we say we should do in a variety of different contexts but applying them to the specificities of an urban setting. Um, and... You know, in a sense, one of the, the, the tricky things, I think, is, is it's hard to be making generalized statements about the specificities of those settings when one of the kind of key principles you say is pay attention to context, right? So, you know, there is a, there's an inherent tension there between saying, God, 
drive towards the specificities of that particular context you're working in, the particular power dynamics, the, the particular pressures and, and opportunities that, that exist in that space, and then sort of elevating that up and saying, well, generalizing across, you know, 500 different cities, different contexts, we can say that, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that tension is there. I do think, though, that there is a fundamental difference to um, on using some term like intensity to how you operate uh, in, in a setting in which you have more people in a smaller space with, uh, even if it's a cruise ship or a, or a refugee camp, uh, as compared to um, a, a more dispersed uh, population. I think there are things that are quite different where you've got a multiplicity of political agendas at play when perhaps you might have a, a, a fewer of those within a within a more dispersed population and so on and so forth. So I think there is something about intensity that is that that then leads you very quickly to how you apply the principles as as uh, as David said being being quite quite fundamentally different. On this issue though of uh, yeah, I mean sort of just specifically on the political agenda. Yeah, are, are you at high risk of being caught up in political agendas in urban settings? I mean, yes you are. But you're also at high risk of that in in rural settings. I mean, I can give you plenty of examples of of, you know, we did programs on the Haut Plateau in, in South Kivu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and because we're intervening in an area where, you know, particular ethnicity uh, dominated, we then got into trouble with uh, political authorities in, in a different place because we were seen as being partisan or somehow how linked to that. So that was not a rural, uh, I mean, that was not an urban intervention. We very much got caught up into a, a political agenda. Um, yes, we got caught up in the political agenda in an urban setting, as it happens, but as a result of a rural intervention. So I think, yeah, there's, there's perhaps there's greater risks because for for a variety of reasons. Um, and again, this isn't this isn't about there being um, more political. Um, uh, it isn't necessarily about it being a more politicised environment, but it, it, there are issues there around. I mean, there's greater visibility generally of what you do in, a, in an urban setting, right? You can't, you can't dodge your failings so easily. You can't sort of brush things under the carpet so easily. And I think a lot of, and this is going back to the, the point I started with, a lot of what we do is, uh, you know, we're quite power blind in a lot of different contexts, uh, blind about our own power in relation to that, our, uh, our relative power in, in, in many settings. And I think... A lot of times there's, there's a clumsiness in the outsider's intervention, uh, and that can come back and bite you very, very quickly in an urban setting. So I guess the sort of, again, to come back to that very uh, common refrain, you know, context is all important. And what that means is not just doing a one-off analysis. I mean, you'll see in the, in the, uh, in the exchange we, we talk about one of the, a colleague of mine talks about one of the tool, toolkits that uh, we've developed and have used uh, in a setting. But it's not, it's not really about just sort of having a snapshot and thinking, okay, I've done that, check that box. I now know what the sort of the political economy of the situation is. Great, I can now go ahead and do what I was going to do anyway uh, and, 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 and get back to the joys of my log frame. But, but really, it, it is about, um, uh, and I also do like log frames in certain, under certain conditions and with a, <laughs> with a certain adaptive space built into them. But... Um, but yeah, this idea that you know you don't just take the first impression as the as your as your guiding star. You know, how often have you 
heard of or seen or yourself made the mistake of listening to that first story from the local context and just sort of sticking with that as, as it, you know, first impressions do stick and shape what we do and that's dangerous. And so it's, it's really, it's a reminder, I think, to be uh, continuously engaged with the context in a way that teases out those underlying hidden political agendas that, that, that will be there, but are also there in rural contexts. Thanks very much. I've got, um, we've got about 15 minutes now, and I've got several questions from our online audience, so I'm going to, to go with some of those. So the first one is from um, Mathana Alsala, um, who says, refugee camps are turning into small cities with the development of infrastructure in place. What should the roles of governments and NGOs be in, in these contexts? So I think getting at the point that some of these are sort of urban, essentially urban, urban areas now. Um, there's a question from Stephanie Lux, and she said, I'd like to hear more about gender in urban versus rural areas. Are there any openings which urban spaces can provide to women affected by crises? Or on the, or on the opposite, she said, are, are women disadvantaged given that community support structures are weaker and public services non-existent or severely affected? I'm not sure whether she means in urban spaces or not. Um, and then Josh, who's from the Nottingham Refugee Forum, asks, given that the issues that refugees face in urban settings globally, access to social protection, access to work, legal access, shelter, accommodation, access to education, etc., um, would you say that there are more commonalities in their experience in urban centers in European contexts versus in Asia, Latin America, Africa? I don't know if that's clear. Then the, finally, um, our friend Annie Devonport, who, who many of us know, um, I would like to raise the issue of those potential negative elements in the community, such as gangs, traffickers, pimps, etc., and ask what strategies any of the panelists have used to work with or around them. So that's four pretty meaty questions. Um, Daniel, are you still with us? No? Daniel, no. Okay. Um, I don't know. Um, Alyosha, would you like to comment on any, any of those? Start at the other end of the table this time. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just going to also try and pretend I wasn't here, but I guess that's not going to work so well. Um, if you need me to repeat any of the questions, I can yeah. do that. So uh, on the challenges refugees face globally or, or people fleeing from... Yes, the refugees so, um, uh, yeah, so turning into small cities and uh, what's the role of government? Uh, no, actually, I'm sorry, I mean the, the, third, the third question oh, about sorry, yeah. um, commonalities in, in yes, sort of yes. experience of displacement, it seemed to be uh, turning mm. around that. I mean, I think it's sort of yes, but, isn't it? There's, there's, um, there is a commonality uh, in the sense that, um, as several panelists have referred to, oftentimes, um, uh, by and large, almost always people fleeing from um, conflict or disaster are not going into the uh, most well-resourced parts of a city and they're generally finding uh, accommodation where there was already, um, where there were already strains on existing uh, uh, infrastructure or where there is uh, excess space or capacity because there's, there's uh, um, 
because these are poorer rundown uh, areas. That said, I mean, there's huge differences between being, a, a, you know, a refugee in the urban uh, Nairobi versus refugee in urban Frankfurt. I mean, there's, so, I mean, yeah, so to the extent that you're able to then um, bring to bear expertise around integration or, or access to basic services or, or whatever it happens to be, there are certain commonalities, but it's, 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 it's stretching the point pretty far, I think, to, to, to generalise beyond that. Um, on the refugee camps to small cities and the role of governments and NGOs, I mean, I think that's an interesting one because um, part of so part of the problem that we face in camp-based settings is, uh, is is mindsets not evolving with the actual setting itself, and so there's this kind of um, uh, 12-month revolving uh, door of, of funding and projects which generally uh, start off better resourced and get worse, worse and worse resourced over time. Uh, that, that sort of mantra of do more with less is one that's very common in a, in a, in a refugee camp setting, particularly ones that have uh, existed over, over several decades. Um, and I think, you know, that is, is, is very much an open question. This, though, gets us very back to the political agendas issue, right? I mean, it, it's... It's often the case that with um, uh, uh, camps that have existed over a, over a long period of time, there's strong pressures to close them down and be seen to be doing something versus also strong pressures to keep them going because there's some very good business interests and so on that are involved. And so that unpacking that can be very, very uh, challenging. So and again, I don't, I don't have a generalizable answer about what the role of government and NGO should be there other than to say that it's, it, it, you know, they are... Uh, complex settings, and I think the, the, certainly the role of NGOs and donors should be to realise that these things are not going away overnight or anytime soon, and that we're, it, it's inappropriate for us to be still behaving as we were five, ten years uh, previously, and and just uh, you know essentially trying to ameliorate people's living conditions and not move on to something a bit more sustainable. That said, there are some perfectly great examples of good programming in, in camps that are very similar to what we would call good programming in, in urban environments. So let me stop there. Thank you. Diane? Yeah, I might pick up on the gender question. Mm -hmm. um, I think the questioner said something about uh, urban settings women have let fewer networks. Or? Yeah, are there any openings which urban spaces can provide to women affected mm -hmm. by crises? Yeah. Or on the opposite, are women disadvantaged given that community support structures are weaker? and public services non-existent mm -hmm. or severely affected? So um, I, I might argue that actually in urban settings there might be stronger community networks amongst women, for example, savings groups or women's groups uh, around women who have uh, home-based work. But um, dis despite that or putting that aside, um, I think a lot of uh, women do rely on home-based enterprises um, to earn a livelihood because it offers more flexibility in, uh, in terms of aligning with their additional caring duties or domestic duties. And if we're talking about a disaster or displacement, they might lose the place in which they work, um, which means um, that there, there there is an opportunity here for very targeted approaches um, aimed directly at women, uh, for example, through cash cash schemes. And we actually have a paper here that's around emergency trash, cash transfers and women's economic empowerment in post-earthquake Nepal, um, which shows that actually um, cash uh, grants, 
schemes which were targeted at women could play a role in changing gender relations in the home by providing money to the women. Um, it meant that they felt more liberated to take decisions about how to spend domestic uh, funds as opposed to if the money was earned by the male head of the household who would then generally just spend the, the money um, as per his priorities. Um, there was also the opportunity through cash for work programs to um, offer more flexibility to uh, meet women's specific uh, scheduling needs. So for example, if they needed to be at home at certain times of day to provide meals, they could still uh, work on these cash for work programs, which I think Oxfam was leading um, in terms of uh, post-earthquake reconstruction and clearing of debris. So there are opportunities, um, but I guess this would apply in rural settings as well, but to tailor programs specifically to meet the needs um, of uh, women, as it were. And I also read a paper recently that was quite interesting that said um, women are not necessarily the most vulnerable when we're talking about displaced populations and that looking at um, Syrian refugees, women were actually a lot more adaptable in terms of finding alternative income sources and me young men were more likely to feel sort of lost or dis uh, struggling to find uh, something to do with their time, their time, um, and so it's. Um, but uh, definitely, we do also need to consider the gender relations, and depends on the context again. <laughs> <laughs> context is everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, gangs. Gangs is a more tricky one. <laughs> um, again, I think if we're talking about area-based approaches um, in Haiti, there there was some research that showed that the gangs had to be integrated into um, the programming because they were essentially gatekeepers or they, if you didn't involve them in, in the programs, then there was a potential for conflict to erupt. But I won't say too much on that because it's not my area. <laughs> okay, thanks Diane. David. Golly. <laughs> I don't know what to say, actually. <laughs> I, I want to speak to Annie, of course, because <laughs> a lot of us know Annie Davenport. And I, I think you said it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of verging on saying the utterly bland and obvious, where, of course, it's negotiating with power structures. And if you ignore power structures and governance that exist, that's at your own peril, literally, personally. And so there, there's an issue of do no harm of, to yourself as much to anybody. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say I can't add any more than that, but I know others in this room would actually know quite a bit about that and experienced it, especially from Haiti and, and elsewhere. Just picking up on the, on the camps of cities, I, I work in a design school, an architecture school, and the number of people I meet who say camps are cities, therefore why don't we build big buildings and do stuff, utterly misses the point because, of course, fundamentally, a host country uh, may bear you being there, and there are plenty of amazing examples of countries who do that, of course, around the world, but fundamentally, please go home, is, is the policy uh, for, you know, for, for not wrong reasons. That said, of course, and as we know, uh, um, camps can, can last for decades, Palestinian camps in, in, in Amman and Jordan, who looks like part of the city. I mean, it's, it's hard on one level to tell the difference. But there is the fundamental political governance issue around the difference between camps and cities. And it comes to how you see the city. Is it a part of the systems, or is it where you make money, do do these other things? So on one metric, yes, but on another, it's not. And there is a fundamental difference. At the end of the day, camps are uh, almost certainly temporary. And temporary might mean decades, of course. Um, but that is different, and that's a different way of seeing things. Thank you. Ruta. Um, I think I'm going to try to connect the camps, cities, and European uh, refugee response questions. 
by basically saying that I think that one of the things that we as NGOs and the international community need to do better is to find out what people are already doing and how we can enhance it. And we have a bit of a tendency to do the reverse. We have a bit of a tendency to study things from A to Z to say, okay, we, we have this result, this outcome, this perfect model. We apply it to everything in the world. But often the people we're trying to work with are already doing things, and often it's the most effective thing there is. And if we can help them to scale up what's already there in the different contexts, if we can re-envision our role, then maybe we'll do a better job. And that leads me very nicely to my last question before we have to close this. And I think you've already provided your answer, Ruta, which is really, um, for, for, all the, for the other panelists, what's the one key suggestion you would offer to help humanitarian agencies engage more effectively in humanitarian response in urban areas? Um, let's see. I think I'll pick Diane as my first victim. <laughs> um, so I suppose um, it's a case of recognizing that humanitarian crises will amplify and also be amplified by existing deficits in the city in question or the town in question. So there's definitely a need to understand the existing complexities uh, on the ground. but. The thing that can be offered by humanitarian interventions is a forward-looking approach that can address longer-term needs whilst addressing also the immediate needs as well. So um, addressing immediate needs and avert future crises through the intervention, if possible, uh, by linking with what's already happening. Mm -hmm. David? Yes. Um, Furiously scribbling. Yes. Yeah. There are two semicolons in this. <laughs> of course, the first one is to listen, and that's the perennial. If you look at any of Mary Anderson's stuff, it's always about listening, and that, that goes on to assessments and all that stuff. But actually, it's listen. Um, and related to that is, um, is deciding what we won't do. An assumption you can fix it is no longer an issue. It probably never was in the first place. But what you won't do is, is at least as much of the conversation. And as part of that is what do you invest precious funds which are short-lived for long-term impact? Thank you. And... Last but not least, Alyosha. Um, so I guess if the future is urban, and we seem to all agree on that through whatever sort of set of stats that we use, so if the future is urban, then humanitarian agencies that are not staffed and skilled to work appropriately in urban settings are not fit for purpose. And by that metric, most of us I would say all of us are not fit for purpose right now. So the one takeaway I would say is that this is not an optional fad. It's really important for all of us to invest in changed practices. And that means not, uh, I mean, by all means, download our toolkits. Great, use them, great. But it's actually about investing in the right sets of skills, the right people to be able to work appropriately in urban settings. Thank you very much. Um, and with that, it's time for us to, to end this session. Um, I wanted to thank everybody again, especially our panelists, for joining us today and our audiences in the room and online. There will be a video of this event on the ODI website, I think, tomorrow. So please do let other people you know who weren't able to come, uh, let them know about that so they can, they can watch it. And I hope you'll join us for tea, coffee, and further conversation outside the room. So thank you very much. Let's give a round of applause.
Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.